This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. The headline of the January 29, 1934 edition of the Wilmington Morning Star didn't mince words as it stretched across the top of the paper in bold letters. Destructive fire rakes rightsful. Just a day earlier, a fire that originated in a boarding house spread across the entire north end of the island which was just starting to become the tourist destination it was destined to be. Rakes is unfortunately an all-too-appropriate description of what happened, as a disastrous combination of wind, a lack of nearby firefighting power, and a tinderbox of building materials allowed the fire to uncontrollably spread. No one ever comes out of a fire unscathed, even if there are no casualties. And for Wrightsville Beach, the blaze jolted it out of a daydream of upward growth that seemed impervious to setbacks. The town was becoming a bigger tourist destination with each passing summer season. The jovial Lumina Pavilion brought in hundreds of families by day and younger generations by night for unmatched beachside entertainment. Luxurious hotels such as the Seashore and the Oceanic provided getaways like no other on the Carolina coast. And praise for the beautiful beach itself was starting to spread even beyond North Carolina's borders. Wrightsville Beach was on a high. But it all changed that chilly day in January 1934 when the community faced the possibility that their bright future had just been burned off the map. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, I wanted to take us into the 20th century by telling a story that many people might not know about one of this region's most popular destinations. The Great Wrightsville Beach Fire of 1934, as it's known, was something of a marvel that's hard to fathom even today, when it seems as though no country is safe from the threat of wildfires. Wrightsville Beach's inferno, although not its first, was unique because it took only a few hours to tear through a third of the still burgeoning island. A rolling disaster that residents and officials could do nothing to stop. In the first season of Cape Fear Unearthed, we covered the destructive fires that charred Wilmington in the 1800s. And we specifically spoke 
about how those fires forever changed the port city's landscape and robbed later generations of the history that they consumed. The same could be said of the Wrightsville Beach Fire, which claimed the island's first decades of memories, while simultaneously sparking a whole new era in its history. As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Madeline Flagler, the executive director of the Wrightsville Beach Museum of History. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we reignite the story of the Great Wrightsville Beach Fire of 1934. The Cape Fear region may trace its development and rise to prominence to prior to the Revolutionary War, but Wrightsville Beach took a little longer to spring up. This was mainly due to access. For much of the early life of the banks, which is what Wrightsville Beach was initially known as, it was only accessible by boat, making it a destination exclusively reserved for those of means, or at least connections. The first structure built on the island was the Carolina Yacht Club in 1881, a meeting house for a group founded by seven men in 1853 who loved to fish and race their boats. Two things that they could do virtually undisturbed in what is now Banks Channel. By the late 1800s, though, more attention to the amenities of the beach had increased interest in opening up a path from Wilmington to the waterfront. Shell Road, a road made of, you guessed it, shells, was built in 1887 and took people to the edge of the Intracoastal Waterway, following the current route of Wrightsville Avenue. The same year, tracks were laid for a passenger car operated by the Wilmington and Seacoast Railroad to take passengers to Harbor Island. From there, they would disembark and take a narrow footbridge to the beach. In two years' time, train service, known as the beach car, would finally extend across Banks Channel to connect guests directly with the beach, allowing them to catch a train in Wilmington and put their toes in the sand in no time at all at least when compared to how long it used to take. This new entry point opened up Wrightsville Beach, which took its name from the prominent Wright family in Wilmington to the world. Cottages had already taken root on the island, but suddenly, people could take day trips to spend some time in the sun. Around the turn of the century, the introduction of the electric beach car allowed more trips and more guests to venture to the island. On July 4th, 1907, 8,700 people were transported to and from Wrightsville Beach. In other words, Wrightsville Beach was booming. Just two years earlier, the Hotel Terrymore opened its doors near Station 1 on the beach car line. 
the massive resort had 125 rooms and offered the latest in amenities, from private bathrooms to electricity to telephones. It had a bowling alley, a saloon, billiard tables, a bathhouse, and a 4,000-square-foot ballroom that hosted daily concerts and dancing. Perhaps most impressively, its owner even solved the problem of accessing clean drinking water on the island by drilling 200 feet into the earth to tap an artisan well. In 1911, the hotel was expanded to include two new massive wings of rooms, and it was rebranded as the Oceanic. This was the place to be on Wrightsville Beach, second only to its rival on the south end of the island, Lumina Pavilion, the massive dance hall that shared many of its guests with the hotel. The Oceanic was the kind of resort that you wrote home about to your families, in part to make them jealous. It was the centerpiece of many postcards, and it enjoyed buzzy word of mouth for many years. But it would also gain notoriety as being the most notable victim of the 1934 fire. At this point, the only thing that Wrightsville Beach really feared was the seasonal threat of hurricanes. Today, some 2,600 residents live on Wrightsville Beach year-round. In 1934, the number of people who stuck it out through the cold months was considerably smaller. Historian Lewis Philip Hall said that it was one of those year-rounders, a man named Edmund Rogers, who was out for a stroll along the wooden boardwalk around 12.30 p.m. on January 28, 1934, when he became the first person to see smoke rising from Kitty Cottage. The large seasonal boarding house on the north end of the island didn't have its usual summertime bustle, but rather only a few guests who were said to have been playing at poker tables at the time. When Rogers and a few neighbors finally broke through the door to investigate the smoke, it was too late. The interior was already red hot with the flames and heat of an angry blaze. The group ran to call the Wilmington Fire Department, as Wrightsville Beach didn't have its own station yet. When residents began to gather at the sight of the smoke, it is said that they started forming a bucket brigade scooping up water from Banks Channel and hastily passing it down the line to douse the fire. Unfortunately, the gale force winds extending up and down the east coast that week only agitated the fire. Soon, embers from the blaze that had finally burst through the roof at Kitty Cottage landed on the Carolina Cottage just south, igniting that boarding house in short order. From that point on, the north end of Wrightsville Beach was at the mercy of the flames and the wind that was whipping them into a frenzy. The fire would then leap to the Sternberger Cottage, the Sigmund Bear, and the homes of prominent citizens like Thomas Wright and Alexander Sprunt. Within the hour, it had also set its sights on the Oceanic. Soon, 
the crown jewel of the North End was engulfed in flames. Even with firemen on the island by now, and plenty of residents and looky-loos standing at a safe distance, the only thing that anyone could do at this point was watch as it all burned. The fire had spread too quickly and too far to be contained. Stories from locals of the time say that residents rushed into the cottages to save furniture and other valued possessions from the flames by pulling them outside. But the fire didn't just attack the structures. It scorched the ground, ultimately leaving those belongings in ruins among the debris. In his book on Wrightsville Beach history, historian Rupert Benson wrote that the fire was only stopped in its tracks by the towering Sand Dunes Resort, which he said served as a wind funnel by diverting the fluttering embers out to sea. In total, more than a hundred structures were destroyed, a staggering number that puts it up there with Hurricane Hazel's arrival three decades later as one of the most destructive chapters in Wrightsville Beach's history. And we still don't even know what started the fire. Some people point the finger at a lit cigarette that got away from one of the poker players in Kitty Cottage, while others say that it was someone ironing upstairs. Who or whatever the culprit actually was, in the charred section of the island, only two buildings survived the blaze. A correspondent in the aforementioned January 29, 1934 edition of the Wilmington Morning Star described the fire from above while flying in a plane. He wrote, quote, The dread god of fire tramped over the northern extension of Wrightsville Beach this afternoon and lighted the cottages one by one like so many tapers. When at last his saga of destruction done, he folded up his wings and soared away. Hundreds of cottages lay in smoldering ruin. At least a third of the popular resort was ashy waste, and scores of year-round residents were destitute. End quote. Not unlike Wilmington after Hurricane Florence in 2018, Wrightsville Beach was now faced with an image problem. Pictures of the charred remains of once-attractive beach cottages and hotels had started to spread across the state and beyond, giving the false impression that Wrightsville Beach had been burned beyond recognition. It's unlikely that any of those photos reference the south end of the island, which was completely untouched by the fire. To get ahead of the PR nightmare, Town officials got to work spreading the news like it was gospel. Wrightsville Beach was still here, and it would be open for business by the start of the summer season, come hell or high water. Advertisements were put in newspapers across the state, and brochures and flyers were circulated in populated areas to get the word out that the town was still how tourists remembered it, just a little scarred. Within days of the fire, the recovery process was also well underway. Just one day after the fire, the Wilmington Morning Star ran a story that said all homeowners who lost property 
had already vowed to rebuild immediately. Within three months, several of those cottages were already upright. The wooden boardwalk that expanded down the beach would be next to reemerge. The town would also redevelop smarter. Today, Lumina Avenue is the primary road for the entire island, but in 1934, a good number of those structures destroyed were situated along Ocean Avenue, a roadway that sat even closer to the oceanfront on the north end. After the fire cleared the sandy road of its homes, island officials chose to do away with the road altogether and focus their efforts on strengthening transportation along Lumina Avenue. Within just a few short months, the town was miraculously on the road to recovery for the start of the 1934 summer season. But that was in part because it had no choice. If the fire had cost the town even one season of business, its momentum to become the behemoth destination it was striving to be could have been jeopardized. This was hardly the first time a community had rallied to save itself. And Wrightsville Beach would do it again after Hurricane Hazel rolled through in 1954. But the fire of 1934 also marked the end of an era. The following year, the causeway would be put in, allowing the public to drive automobiles on the island for the first time. It effectively ended the reign of the joyful beach car ride, but it made it easier for emergency officials to respond more quickly. The 1934 fire came so early in Wrightsville Beach's life that it might seem like its impact is long gone. But tragedies like this, even though there were no casualties, never truly disappear in communities. Rather, they quietly shape and influence the generations to come. Today, the fire might just be a tiny ember in the past. But as this community learned in 1934, even those can have tremendous consequences. Joining me now to talk further about the Wrightsville Beach Fire of 1934 and Wrightsville Beach's history around that time period is Madeline Flagler, the Executive Director of the Wrightsville Beach Museum of History. Thank you so much for being here, Madeline. Thank you for having me. So if you remember back to our second season, Madeline was here to talk about Lumina Pavilion, um, which was the just hugely popular pavilion uh, on on Wrightsville Beach, but we're actually going to go to the other end of the island for this story and this conversation. And I want to start just kind of setting the scene of Wrightsville Beach at the time, because this was a really momentous moment for Wrightsville Beach. It was a a moment of intense growth, a lot of attention, people kind of turning their eye to this new kind of tourist destination. And so what was it like in Wrightsville Beach in the 20s and the 30s? Well, in the 20s, it really boomed. Um, You had Lumina Pavilion, you had two large hotels. Um, The Oceanic Hotel had its own dance band um, for them to have dinner dances every night. Um, So it was really very much thriving as the rest of the country was. Um, During the Depression, um, it it survived because, partially because, 
it was right beside the largest city in North Carolina. A lot of people don't realize that, but um, at the time, Wilmington was and had been the largest city in North Carolina for quite a while. So you had um, a thriving metropolis um, where people didn't have to travel so very far to get to the beach. Um, at that point, a lot of families already had um, cottages at the beach where they would go for the summertime. So you had that backbone of, um, of steady, um, uh, steady participation. Um, there was a lot of growth, um, but it had leveled off a little bit by the 1930s um, in 1934 when the fire occurred. There was, um, you know, you had the trolley coming from Wilmington. You had the, um, that was connected um, to the streetcar system in Wilmington, but also um, its its um, terminus was at basically the railroad station, so people yeah. could come from all over. Um, so they had really um, made it easy for people to get to the beach. Um, and yet there had been a little bit of a dip because of the Depression, and so um, the fire was, was came at a very interesting time. One thing that, that you mentioned when we were talking about this prior to recording was, and this seems to for it now, that they had to kind of entice people to come to the beach, you know, as a, as a means of leisure and relaxation. If you go back and look at the development of beach towns in the United States and in southern France and even in England, um, it was before there was, um, before the Industrial Revolution, before you had um, reliable transportation to the beaches, it was very hard to get there. Um, and you think about um, coming from Wilmington, where there was not even a road until the Shell Road, which was in the late 1800s. Um, you, it was very hard to get there. You had to cross through the marshes. You had to get over what is now Harbor Island, which was the hammocks, to get to Wrightsville Beach itself. So it was not easy to get there. It was a trek. It was. <laughs> and it was like that all along the coast. People didn't go to the coast because it was too hard to get there. But once you had trains or trolleys, um, people and people could get to the to beach, they would do that. And the time period that coincided with that was the time that um, suddenly people of um, uh, all different classes suddenly had some disposable income and some leisure time. So they could there were they actually had a weekend before that they really didn't and they had a little bit of money and they could inexpensively and reliably get to the beach spend the day and come home so um, at the turn of the century you started to have an impetus of you know building this um, tourism industry that really had not existed before seems so foreign now because so many people uh, <laughs> they build their week around their weekend and <laughs> their right. leisure time and so yeah knowing that that wasn't something that was already built into a person's life is uh, it's really interesting to think about. And, and the Riceville Beach um, entities that were building Riceville Beach, they actually went to conferences and conventions um, along the East Coast with other people that were doing the same kind of thing. Mm. They were developing these beach properties that before that had had almost no value whatsoever. And... Um, so this was not just Wrightsville Beach. It was all along the East Coast. Wow. Um, now let's, let's transition to the actual fire. From what I read, it didn't seem... It, nobody died in the Wrightsville no. Beach uh, fire of 1934. But well, it still had such an impact. Right. Well, it happened in, um, in January. It was January 28th, 1934. It was a Sunday morning. Um, 
people at that point in time, there were very few people that were actually living in the on the beach during the winter time. It was full blast in the summer, but nine months out of the year. Even though um, Wrightsville was established as a city in um, as its own town in 1899, um, until 1940, um, nine months out of the year, the the Wrightsville Beach business was done in Wilmington. It was, you know, even they packed up and left. Wow. So that there was that. Um, and the fact that um, uh, it, it whipped up so quickly. Um, the, but the, it, the main place is that it, it started at the Kitty Cottage, and then it quickly um, blew over into the Oceanic Hotel. And both of those were, there were a few people in the Kitty Cottage, but there really was no one in the, um, the Oceanic. And I, I, I told our listeners the, both kind of the progression of the fire and also just the rich history of the Oceanic, because mm-hmm. I have a postcard. Um, one thing that I've been doing since I've been doing the show is collecting old postcards of different places in Wilmington. Many of them have been lost, and that's one of them. Um, and it's really fascinating to look at such a massive structure that was out at Wrightsville Beach, and you try to place it in your mind now when you're out at Wrightsville Beach, and it's hard to see it. Um, it's hard to see such a big thing, you know, just lost. But from the accounts I read, it seems like it went up really quickly, and it was gone pretty it, fast. It was, and part of there were a couple of different reasons for that. One, of course, was that it was. Um, made from wood, and our local, our most prominent local wood is pine. Mm-hmm. Um, the wind really whipped up. It was dry late January. You know how that that goes. And the way that the Oceanic was constructed, um, it boasted that everyone had um, an ocean breeze. And the way that they did that was they did not, um, it was not a compact building. It actually had two narrow arms that went from um, Lumina Avenue to the beach. So you have all this open air that just where the wind could just whip up. So it went, it did go very quickly. Um, It's interesting when we have children and we talk about that because we have a model of the beach and we talk about the oceanic and why it's no longer there, they look alarmed. And I look at them and say, but now we have sprinkler systems. We have all kinds of things that um, prevent that kind of thing from happening today. One thing I like about this story is Riceville Beach wasted no time in, you know, <laughs> kind of trying to recover from the fire. Right. The same day that the the Wilmington Morning Star, which is the Star News, uh, they basically there was a story about the fire, and next to it was a story about how they had all vowed to start rebuilding. Right. And so, I mean, that promptness to kind of look to the future and look past mm-hmm. the fire is that kind of what helped that whole end of the island bounce back? I mean, just that that willingness to just start rebuilding now? Um, I think that's true. Um, today, when something happens at a beach or a resort, a lot of the people that are involved with that are from out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, they're investors from someplace else. All of these buildings, um, all of the houses, most of them were you know, all um, owned by locals. And locals that didn't live far away, they were just 10 miles. Um, in addition to that, they had already survived one other catastrophe, which was the Great Storm of 1899, which the Star News says that, um, the Morning Star said that, basically swept the beach clean. And they took that opportunity to 
moved from a small gauge railroad to an electric trolley that was connected to the streetcar system. And um, there was a, a huge boom of growth. And um, the mayor at the time, J.A. Taylor, referenced actually that the day after the fire, when he when they meet to talk about what they're going to do next, and he says, you know, this is an opportunity. Um, what do we want to do? Now, one of the things they did not do was um, recreate the Oceanic Hotel. They had um, another hotel. They had um, several boarding houses. Um, they did not recreate that. They almost immediately bulldozed it and sold those lots for cottages. But they did use this as an opportunity to also relook at um, how people got to the beach, um, because the story of the fire is one of you know one um, one roadblock after another as far as getting that. Wonder why they didn't rebuild the Oceanic. It seems like you know there's, it was so popular, it was so visible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just thought that was interesting that they chose to not pursue it. I guess it's whoever owns it or whatnot. But I didn't really see any reason, like in, in my research of of why yeah. it never came back. Um, now, this is simply my opinion, but my assumption is that it's 1934. It's the actually the depth of the Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oceanic was dependent upon visitors mostly from out of town. And those, I would imagine that those visitors had plummeted mm-hmm. um, during the Depression. They already had a big hotel and they had Illumina. So they had a draw to the beach for um, um, visitors from out of town. Um, but the local visitors were still coming. The local people were still there. And so they bulldozed and um, sold those lots for cottages. Um, it's where the Bear Cottage was. And lo- lots of local people were um, purchased those lots and could afford to build a cottage there. Um, none of these were great, grand um, houses the way you think of as um, in many other places, larger places. But these were very nice but relatively modest cottages. So that's what they did. Um, and they invested more heavily in ways to get to the beach that were made it easier for people. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about this story, and it's different than the episodes we've done recently, which have been really large stories. This was a singular event, but Mm -hmm. it had this rippling effect of, like you said, Wrightsville Beach had to look at its future and Mm -hmm. be like, what are we going to do? We literally have a blank canvas, well, a charred canvas, yes. but, you know, a, a place to, to start anew if they wanted to. And I think it's interesting that timing could have played a role in mm-hmm. not rebuilding what was there. But a good chunk of Wrightsville Beach looked completely different after this mm-hmm. fire. Um, and I imagine continued to have those, those I guess, ramifications for mm-hmm. years and years to come. Mm-hmm. But this also wasn't the only fire. I mean, there was a few hotels that caught fire. The seashore mm-hmm. caught fire. 1919, um, yeah. 1919, and that was a big, very big fire as it well. Um, and the Ocean View Hotel at mm-hmm. one point. Um, I just, I'm curious, I, I feel like probably, even though it wasn't to the scale of 1934, mm-hmm. all of those probably had some type of ramification. I mean, they rebuilt the seashore, did they not? They did, they did. And in, in 1919, that was 
you know, that was really at the cusp of the height of um, what was going on at Riceville Beach. The 1920s were truly roaring for Riceville Beach. Um, people were coming in from all over the country, coming by train and using these big hotels. And so they knew they needed that. I think that when they did not um, in 1934, they didn't see the, a huge need for another big hotel. Yeah. Um, and so they did not um, rebuild that. Well, and just to give our listeners a, uh, a their bearings, where, if you go on Riceville Beach now, where would the Oceanic have been? It would have been right where Tower 7 is. Okay. And it went from there all the way to the beach, that entire block. Wow. So it was a huge, massive um, building. There's actually a little street down there that's called Oceanic. Okay. So, you know, it ran from Stone Street to Oceanic, and it went all the way back. Um, so it was it was a huge, massive endeavor. Yeah. We did an episode on this show, and I mentioned it earlier in the show as well, uh, about the fires that basically shaped Wilmington in the 1800s right. mm-hmm. um, that as you know Beverly Tedderton who was on the episode that we did on that she said it kind of robbed Wilmington of being an 18th century city because so much of it was lost to fire mm-hmm. and so much of Wrightsville Beach at least some of these landmarks were also lost to fire mm-hmm. one story that I did find when I was uh, doing this research that I thought was really really fascinating and one thing i wanted to make sure we talked about was shell island and so mm-hmm. shell island now people know of there's a resort there mm-hmm. at the at the northern end of of Wrightsville beach um but initially it was going to or it was a mm-hmm. community for african americans in the 1920s mm-hmm. but it also had kind of a tragic end so what what do we know about kind of the the development of shell island in the 20s well, Shell Island was separate from Wrightsville Beach, and it was um, uh, separated by Boers Inlet, which was filled in much later. But at the time, um, they established in um, from 1923 to 26, there was an African-American resort up there. It had a big pavilion. It had a big hotel. Um, it seemed to be quite thriving and replicated basically some of what was at Wrightsville Beach. Um uh, those who were visiting it would come on the trolley and then take a ferry over on the northern end of um, uh, the hammocks. So, um, uh, and it was there, as I said, for a couple of years. It's, it, it appeared to thrive. And then there were what they called mysterious fires in 1926, and it burned and was not rebuilt. Um, we don't really have much more information than that. It did um, seem like it was thriving. We've looked everywhere. We've yeah. looked in fire records. We've looked in insurance records. We've looked everywhere. And so it's hard to know exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, and, and that obviously that was the age of segregation. And so mm-hmm. rights will Absolutely. be that they put that there so that African-Americans would have somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they didn't want them on Wrightsville Beach at that point. Right. Um, but... I think it's interesting. I was reading some things, and it said that there were cottages. There were there was just a liveliness to it mm-hmm. for for the short period that it was there. Mm-hmm. And I just I find it really tragic that um, that whole section right there. You know, I, I knew nothing about it. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. it was separate from Wrightsville Beach, but um, the fact that it only had a short life is really unfortunate because mm-hmm. it sounds like it could have been a, a really important place for the African-American mm-hmm. community in this area. That's right. And um, 
And there are there were other beaches that were more accommodating. Um, there are places on Topsail, and then down towards Carolina Beach, Sea Breeze. Um, and that's actually going to be one of our first exhibits when we open our new building is on the local African American beaches. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 another really sad part of the history and fire kind of in, intermingling mm-hmm. of that in our area that things like that were lost and unfortunately the effort was put in to build it but not to maintain it or mm-hmm. rebuild it mm-hmm. one thing that i think is really interesting about this whole story and this whole time period of wrightsville beach one the money was clearly there on the wrightsville beach side obviously mm-hmm. not with uh shell island but there was this idea that I think they knew, especially in the things that I read, that this was going to be a really important moment for Wrightsville Beach. If they didn't do it right, it Mm -hmm. could set them back in a way Mm -hmm. because they wanted to rebuild. They wanted to do it quickly and they wanted to make sure people knew that Wrightsville Beach hadn't been charred. And and I said this earlier, but I think back to a couple years ago when I was doing reporting on Hurricane Florence and Mm -hmm. Wilmington had this image problem that the national news was here and showed us getting completely flooded and just getting all this rain and wind mm-hmm. and everything. And then the that was pretty much the last thing that you saw of Wilmington on CNN and it yeah. made it seem like we were gone. Right. And I think that that's probably, you know, at least in my opinion, that that's probably something they felt at that time where all these really tragic photos of, you know, charred cottages and everything mm-hmm. uh, were sent out, but they had to remind people that Wrightsville Beach was really there. And this was a big turning point because then automobiles arrive and mm-hmm. the trolley kind of declines. And, and so what is, what is the ultimate legacy of this fire and this time period in, in Wrightsville Beach's history? Well, it really seemed to set off um, a, uh, a domino effect. Um, they immediately um, improved the road that came to Wrightsville Beach. They um, started transitioning to bring some cars over, but also um, uh, established a fire department Thank that goodness. was a little bit better than what they had. Um, they had brought, um, the, because there were no re- roads at Wrightsville Beach, um, there wasn't any way for them to, um, an easy way for them to get the fire truck over. Um, they immediately were alerted. They got the fire truck on a flatbed and put it on the trolley and brought it over. But when they got there, it was they couldn't get it close enough because it sank in the sand. There were no roads, and um, so they, you know, worked on those two um, aspects to bring roads over to the beach and um, to accommodate travel so that cars, but also things like fire trucks, could get over there as well. Uh, the trolley was becoming less and less popular, um, and by um, nineteen. 38, 39, it was really being used less and less. The last trolley ride was in 1940. And at that point, they had they pulled up the tracks and paved them for the streets. So that's Lumina, South Lumina and North Lumina Avenue. And um, that was um, a big transition. Um, but it was a transition that was happening all over the country. That was not just Wrightsville Beach. It just happened to be that, just like timing, Mm-hmm. This just happened to be there was a huge fire that kind of alerted them to some of these, uh, not shortcomings, but I guess just 
the need for modernization, I guess, to really the, thrive. Yeah, what the advantages would be if they did make it accessible to cars and yeah. to trucks and things like that. Um, thinking about that now, speaking to postcards, I have a postcard where there is no road. It's just the trolley through, mm-hmm. through Wrightsville Beach. And that is fascinating to think about. I mean, it looks like a road, obviously, but it's not one that you would have driven a car on. It's literally just there was such a reliance on that trolley, mm-hmm. such a reliance. And that was the heyday of that period of Wrightsville mm-hmm. Beach. You would hop on the trolley in Wilmington or, or right. wherever and, and go and hang out with your friends or your family. And uh, it was a real to do i guess it was a it was an experience it was and um and it made it so that it was really extremely convenient for anybody who um lived in wilmington um and that's why many families not always people that were of the most wealthy class um people could um of even more modest means could afford to um have a house built at ricehill beach and the trolley made it so that they could basically move out there for the summertime, um, lock, stock, and barrel with all the kids and the dogs and everybody. And um, whoever needed to go into town could use the trolley um, to, um, to commute back and forth. The trolley in the summertime would go as often as every 45 minutes. It only took 40, 45 minutes to get into town. So it was extremely convenient, um, and uh, particularly for this city that was at the time a thriving metropolis. And it only takes about that much time to get out there now if you're coming from Wilmington <laughs> with the traffic. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, the uh, again, the reason I wanted to do this story is I kept seeing this moment in Wrightsville Beach when I would go look through different stories for ideas. And, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was an interesting thing to think about, you know, a fire where no one died, mm-hmm. but clearly something was lost mm-hmm. and therefore something had to be evaluated. And, and I think Wrightsville Beach kind of was just thrust into the future um you know it was a wake-up call i think because they were coming from that heyday you know like you said it was the depression but Mm -hmm. they were still i imagine riding on the high of those booming years and Mm -hmm. hoping that they could reclaim that and and the railroad at that time um the railroad was a huge a huge employer and one of the things they did during the depression was they hired a lot of people um, in response to that, because there was unemployment everywhere, the railroad really kept Wilmington a little bit above the fray. Not completely, but um, it really helped. And um, that's why when the railroad left, people were just devastated because they had seen it as their lifeline. Uh, well, Wrightsville Beach has plenty of stories. We will do plenty more stories about Wrightsville Beach. But uh, thank you so much, Madeline, for coming and talking about the fire in this time period. Again, I think it's uh, an important one for Wrightsville Beach. It's a it's a turning point, and once you could get cars out there, it was a whole new game. <laughs> it, it was, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, and our look at the charred history of the Great Wrightsville Beach Fire of 1934. Thank you so much for joining me. As a reminder, we will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks in 2020. So be sure to check back in then for the next chapter from our local history books. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and this week, 
I'm going to share photos from the 1934 fire and from a few other fires that touched Wrightsville Beach. You can find that group by searching Kate Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every week. In it, I will include links to our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I find in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News Today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.